am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. 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 You won't get it. By hook or by crook, we will. Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. <laughs> Welcome to episode 5 of Who and Company. My name is Drew. And I'm Brent. And this month on Who and Company, we'll be talking with actor Jeremy Raddick about his career and specifically his role in the 1996 Doctor Who TV movie with Paul McGann. We'll discuss what we think of series 10 so far. And then we'll turn our attention to the legendary 1967 sci-fi classic series, The Prisoner, and discuss two episodes that Jeremy has picked out for us. And that's all coming up right after this. I know you. You do, huh? Gareth, answer the second question on your midterm exam, not the third. The third may look easier, but you'll mess it up. What? Remember, answer the second question. Don't forget. I won't. Now, can I see what's in your hands? only person in today's conversation that can honestly raise their hand when asked the question, have you appeared in an episode of Doctor Who? His TV selection celebrates its 50th anniversary in September. Jeremy Raddick, welcome to Who and Company. Thanks, great to be here. Well, we're glad that you could make it, uh, and it's really great to be able to uh, set it up so we can have these conversations. Isn't technology a wonderful thing? It's amazing. It's like we're living in the future. It's the Jetsons. I know. It's the future today. It's, um, no, I got nothing clever, so there we go. <laughs> Through science. 
yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, uh, so <laughs> I, I was just, uh, I hadn't planned on this, but I was looking over my calendar of stuff and I uh, circled on my calendar. I actually have 21st anniversary of Doctor Who TV movie this week, like a couple of days ago. Oh my God. So, right. Does it feel like 21 years? Only when you mention it. Thanks. <laughs> it makes me feel old at that point. But no, yeah, it does. I mean, it was yeah, it's uh, it was a uh, it was a pretty crazy part of my life at that point. Uh, so I think about that period a lot. So uh, yeah, it's always nice to think about it. It was a good time. Yeah, we want to talk about it a little bit because I'm we're kind of sure. curious. Because again, like I said in the intro, you're the only person in this conversation who can say that you have been on Doctor Who. We're all very jealous here. Acting <laughs> is not something I aspire to. But still, that's that's not bad. Um, yeah, I gotta yeah, ask. Was... Yeah, were you a fan of Doctor Who before you got cast in the role? Well, it's a funny it's a funny story uh, actually. Um, so I I'd started acting really young. I was uh, eleven when I had my first professional role in in Canadian television, and uh, I had been studying since I was six. So it, it's kind of always been part of my life. And the only thing that's maybe a bit earlier than that is Doctor Who. My first memory, like my brain, when my brain came online and I actually, like, you know, remember things, is uh, John Pertwee's last title sequence, scaring the bejeebus out of me when I was a baby. Um, So my parents must have been watching it. So I had always known about Doctor Who. Um, but when the TV movie was being cast, I was a gigantic fan. I had the House Stammers Walkers books. I was buying VHS because it was 21 years ago. And yes, I'm that old. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I had watched it, uh, I, you know, on all sorts of mediums. I'd watched it in a, there was a Canadian um, children's channel called YTV. And when they first started, they, for some reason, bought, like, a gigantic amount of Doctor Who. So they started broadcasting it from the William Hartnell days, uh, all the ones that existed. So I watched it there. Uh, I'd watched it on PBS. And and I was actually stage managing uh, a series of plays at the time. And a friend of mine came in and said, I just auditioned for this weird thing. It was, like, Sherlock Holmes in space. And he had a telephone booth and... And I was doing a million things. I wasn't really paying attention. And then, like, it took me a minute. And I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. Was it called Doctor Who? And he goes, yeah. And so I immediately called my agent and I said, listen, I'll be a potted plant. I'll be a chair. I'll be, (laughs) you know, uh, anything that they want me to do, I will be. But I got to get in this movie. And, you know, this was pre-internet. So you didn't always know if you were very busy, what was going on in the world of Doctor Who at the time. So I knew that one was coming back, but I actually didn't even know it was filming in Vancouver. And so my agent called the casting director, and and, um, I don't know how much you guys know about how it works when it comes to casting, but, you know, the casting director will see a wide variety of people, and then they will narrow it down through a callback, and then, or, or even two sessions of callbacks. The idea being that when the director, Jeffrey Sachs, comes in, He's only going to see five people because for a part that I was doing, it was a, basically a couple scenes. He doesn't want to see everybody. And my agent said to the casting director, he said, you know, like, can you squeeze them into the callbacks? And, you know, they're reluctant to do that because if word gets out that they do that, it kind of defeats the purpose. So she said, you know what, I really don't want to. I just want to bring in the people I got. And to his credit, my agent said, let me ask you a question. How many times have you had to explain the concept of this show to an agent or an actor 
And this was in the days before the revival, so Doctor Who was really culty at that point. Not a lot of people knew about it, and if they did, it was that cheesy show where the sets wobbled. And she said, oh my god, I'm explaining it like you wouldn't believe. I have to like totally go through it. And my agent just said, you know what? They'll never have to explain a second of it to him. He'll get every joke, he'll get every reference, he knows how to interact with the, with the characters, he knows it all. And she said, okay, come on in, I can't guarantee that we'll see him. And so I basically came and sat and waited around until they got a free moment right before lunch and uh, was able to audition. So I kind of crashed it and did the audition. And at that point, the character was a lab assistant. He wasn't a security guard. And, uh, and then uh, I, I heard just a few days later that I got it. And didn't tell anyone I was a fan at all because, uh, as I as I've said to Paul and Daphne and and Yiji since then, you know, there's nothing weirder than acting across from someone <laughs> who's like a huge, gigantic, crazy fan because I mean that can be off-putting. And I think Paul was already a little nervous about jumping into something with such a huge fan base, so I, I just played it really cool. The only person who knew was Philip Siegel, uh, the producer of the TV movie. And so he, uh, he was very kind to me, he showed me the script, he let me play with Sylvester McCoy's Sonic Screwdriver, and he showed me the external, external TARDIS set, and uh, it was very cool. And I shot, you know, did my, it was a long shoot, it was shot for, I guess, 18, 19 hours that night, it was a very long night shoot, and uh, then, you know, that was it, it was done. And I thought, oh, that was great, it was fun, and oh my god, I was part of something, and it was amazing, and, you know, I'm just was over the moon. And then right before the show premiered, uh, Philip Siegel sent me a letter. He's the only producer in 20 years of, of show business to have ever done this. He sent me a letter thanking me for my work and, and, uh, and you know, congratulating me on contributing to the show and, you know, and, and hoping that I had a good time and hoping that it would go as a main series in the fall of 1997, I think, or 98. Uh, and that was that was it. And now here I am, still talking about it, twenty one years later. <laughs> um, what was your response upon seeing the movie for the first time? My response was great. Um, you know, one of the things that I think, I mean, I don't know, were you guys? How long have you guys been fans, Drew? I think that was the movie that you became a big fan of, right? Like that's what brought you into the universe. I read the comics when I was a kid, uh, right? So, like, my introduction to Doctor Who was was via the comics, and then. The movie came out, and I actually read the uh, Howard Stam, uh, Stammer's um, books as well to, to right. before the movie came out, sort of, and I wanted to learn a bit more about it, or around the same time. And, uh, yeah, but then, no, the, the TV movie is is my in. It's, you know, you were talking about first doctors. Paul McGann is my first doctor. Wow. So. That's cool. And, Brent, are you, are you a long-term? Yeah, mine was 1980, the beginning of time. Okay, so, so uh, you're only going to be like me. You remember the wilderness years and I do, yeah. when you would hear rumors from Doctor Who magazine or just, you know, general rumors between fans. Some of them were the craziest things you've ever heard. Like, I remember, and I have no idea how accurate or if this is just something I made up, but I swear to God I remember a story coming out where it was going to be an American doctor directed by Steven Spielberg with Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington is the doctor. And it was this Daleks were going to be giant spider creatures and the master was going to be his father. I mean, it was like crazy cuckoo. <laughs> like some of it, you just went like, what the hell is that? And seeing this script and seeing like, you know, the tiny like half human thing and the kissing and companion thing, 
I was so glad that there were no spider Daleks and, you know, it was, it, it felt and read and sounded like the Doctor Who I'd always watched that, you know, the little things that bothered fans so much I thought was just, didn't matter to me because, you know, Paul was great. He looked like the Doctor. He sounded like the Doctor and everything else was, you know, just, you know, it, it didn't matter to me. And sure enough, when the reboot happened in, in 2005, um, you know, they changed a lot of things and it didn't matter. It was, it actually just made it a bit more contemporary. So I, I really loved it. Um, I had more trouble with Eric's interpretation of the master initially, but I actually think now it's really great. It fits in really nicely with the overall spirit of the master as he's gone on to kind of grow and become Missy. And I think the theatricality of Eric was kind of just ahead of its time. And now it doesn't seem over the top or broad at all. I remember at the time thinking, well, that's a big, <laughs> he's swinging for the fences. Um, but I think that's just the way Eric saw it. And I don't think he was wrong. I think he was, it was, it, it's now a performance I really enjoy and, and don't take as seriously as I did when I saw it in 96. So I, I actually think the things I like about it, I like more about it each year. Uh, and the things that bothered me when I first saw it don't matter to me at all anymore. So um, the only things that make me mad now are just it's sort of, you know, it, it has a bit of a TV movie feel to it just in terms of the look of it. But that's just a, a relic of 1996 and nothing else. So, hmm. Do you watch it often? Secretly all the time. Yeah. No, no, no I don't watch myself often in anything ever. I mean... Not that there's a lot to watch. Canada is a lot like England in that we like to air things once and then misplace the tapes forever. So, um, except we do it on purpose and England, you know, regrets it. Um, there's stuff I've done. I did television shows for the CBC. I did it three years on a television show and two years on another. And I don't think anyone will ever see those shows ever again. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, I, I, even if they were around, I don't think I'd watch it because it's just sort of weird. It's weird to see yourself on, on television. You guys listen to yourself on podcasts. You know, it feels kind of kind of weird. Yeah. I, I was wondering, most actors I talk to, they're, they're, they tell me that they don't like watching themselves. However, mm -hmm. you're a Doctor Who fan and it is a Doctor Who, you're in Doctor Who, so I was wondering if maybe one uh, kind of balanced out the other, so. Yeah, I know, I'll skip over my stuff. I mean, like, when I do my rewatches, you know, like every Doctor Who fan, I'm like, I'll rewatch it. I, I tend to try and skip over my stuff. Um, you know, I mean, it, yeah, it's, you know, there's a good joke in it. I mean, you know, and, and to be honest, the best thing about having done it is, you know, there's lots of actors that do things that, you know, there's no... Uh, you can have a big, long career and, and work, and, and maybe you'll have one or two things that will live for a long period of time. So, you know, I mean, especially my career, I was a, mostly a day player in, in American stuff. So, you know, there's not a lot of stuff of mine that's going to live forever, you know, for whatever reason. Uh, and uh, to be part of something that is truly, you know, immortal like Doctor Who, that's a huge, that's just a thrill. It's just a really... It's really an honor to be part of something that people are still enjoying 21 years later. That's just great. And I, you know, I, as I say, I watch it for Paul and Daphne and, and, uh, and Yiji and Eric and how great they all are and Sylvester and stuff. And, and for the energy and the jokes and the fun and the, you know, the spirit of it, which it really, it really wanted to, to bring Doctor Who to America and relaunch it. And it took it seriously. And there's a lot of love in that movie. Uh, so that, that's what I like about it. Was uh, was it a pretty fun uh, atmosphere, like 
behind the scenes waiting for your next scene or with all the other actors and everything or did you not hang out or what um it was no it was great i mean you know paul and daphne it's they're very kind and generous and welcoming people right so you know they were very sweet i you know and and um a ton of fun and and it was but you know it's a hard thing because the shoot was short in terms of you know your shooting time so that means you're covering a lot of pages in the day and they were in the midst of some just you know god awful night shoots i mean they're really it's really not fun to go to work at four o'clock in the afternoon and work until the sun comes up that that screws around with you in a lot of ways you know and nothing feels good about that and so i mean it's that's a challenge and i think also as well like uh, and i'm not telling stories out of school i think paul was a little bit like unsure of what he had gotten himself into it's a big deal i don't envy any actor uh who's had a thriving you know huge career to take on a part like that because you know you're taking on a part that's going to be the top line of your obituary unless you make Citizen Kane. You know, you're going to, it's going to be Doctor Who. That's, you're the doctor. That's the first thing, you know. And Paul's had a long career and he's done amazing stuff with Mill and I and uh, his work on Luther and a ton of other things. Uh, and, you know, it's still going to probably be the first line of his obituary. So, and that's a huge, you know, that's a, hu that's a huge deal and it can be kind of nerve-wracking. So, you know, was it like a laugh a minute? No, they, they were working and they were working hard, but it was, it was, they were very kind and generous. And, and one of the, the testaments of that is, um, I, I, when I ran into Paul for the first time in 20 years, uh, at a convention in Oklahoma city, you know, he immediately like, without even being prompted, you know, Daphne was like, Hey, look who's here. And he turned and saw me. And remember we worked together for 18 hours, 20 years earlier. Uh, he just turned and just broke into the hugest grin and he was like, oh my God, what are you doing? I don't even think he knew I was a guest at the con because he just goes to so many cons. And he just, you know, gave me a big hug and we hung out all weekend and, you know, it's been a nice reconnection and we've had a great time ever since. So, I mean, you know, I can't say enough about how kind they were, but making the movie was, a, it was, I mean, they were in the middle of a tough job and they were welcoming and fun, but uh, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uproarious, but it was, it was really nice. It was fun. So, Jeremy, uh, there's other things uh, that I saw that you were in earlier. Um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show, um, an episode of Psych, which mm -hmm. is, is a good show. Um, I saw you were also in one ep episode of The X-Files. So, um, yeah, tell me about that. Well, that was a fun one. Um, the X-Files was, uh, it was funny. I just finished, at that time, wrapping up a, a TV series uh, for the CBC called The Odyssey. Um, which had a lot of young actors in it, but one of the guys that was in it a lot over the three years we did it was um, was Ryan Reynolds, who was just starting to kind of you know he Ryan was a special guy, He's killingly funny, uh, even at sixteen he was just hilarious, and you could tell he had a like that weird kind of light around him that some actors do where you're like okay well. You know, no one can be that handsome and charming and funny, so he's going to have to go to L.A. and go and be big. Um, but the X-Files, he was doing that episode. And so he, in the teaser of that episode, which is called, I think, Zizigy or something, uh, he dies. He's killed. And he's killed after delivering a eulogy for another high school student. And so my role in the in this episode was I delivered Ryan's eulogy. And the kind of joke of that episode, or at least of that part, was that my eulogy is exactly the same as his eulogy had been. 
Um, so it's the same kind of words. It starts off the same. Now, there's two funny things about that. Number one, I told Ryan on the set, because he was doing the autopsy scene at the same day I was doing the eulogy. I said, hey, I've always wanted to do your eulogy. And he sent me like a little picture about love and kisses when he was the corpse. He's like a little Polaroid of him as the corpse and stuff. And <laughs> so we like to tease each other. Um, and the other joke is that it was one of those scenes, and if you watch the X-Files, they had tons of scenes like this. Someone would die, and then... Uh, Mulder and Scully would show up at the funeral of the person who died in the opener and the teaser uh, and talk to the cops at the back of the funeral and they would get some exposition out of the way. They'd be like, oh, how did this happen? And you know, the weird thing is, and they would do the, and what you would hear in the background under the soundtrack is whoever's doing the eulogy or the priest doing the prayer, they're still talking, right? So the audition for the scene was I had like three lines of written dialogue. But then I had to improvise the rest because what they would do is have this whole other scene going on with, with uh, Jillian and David and I think her name was Dana, Dana Wheeler Nicholson who was a great actress as well at the back and I'm supposed to just talk over her. So I go in for the audition. I audition for Rob Bowman. I improvise a whole, I guess like half a page of dialogue and Rob Bowman says, great. Uh, I get cast uh, and I'm first day we're doing the uh, master shot and Rob just says, you know, just start, just do the thing, you know, do the first couple lines and then... Jillian and David will do their scene. What he didn't tell me is what he kind of expected me to do was just to kind of fade out and they would record my part of it later. Um, so I just kept on talking and talking and talking and talking. I'm doing this eulogy. It's getting emotional. I'm talking and talking. I realize I've been going on for a very long time. And finally, I take a look over to the back of the set where Jillian and David and Dana are all standing and they're just staring at me. And I kind of run out of things to say and David Duchovny then just says oh we stopped the scene about five minutes ago but we just wanted to see <laughs> how long you could keep going you know with this eulogy so you know that was a fun set too because you know they were uh you know David is a really funny guy he was he's a very private guy but um he and I kind of hung out a little bit and played with his dog and he had this amazing dog it was like a set trained movie dog it was like the puppy of a famous movie stunt dog so when this, this, the camera crew would say rolling or the sound guy would say rolling, um, the dog would, would stop moving and stop making any noise and sit by the camera until they said cut. And then the dog would get up and walk over to David. It was that well trained. It was totally wow. silent. Um, and that was his dog at the time. And Jillian had just had a baby, so she wasn't around very much. And um, there were people constantly on the set who had conspiracy theories who would come up and talk to David or try to talk to David about the moon mission being faked and... Kennedy's assassination and all that sort of stuff. So uh, it was, it was, that was a fun set. It was a very strange day. And I could tell, I looked over at David, I'm like, that happened a lot. He goes, oh my God, it happens like five times a day. That's, that's, that's what happens, you know? And, and I'm, I just have to find a way to be kind without getting sucked into, to, you know, everything that they want to talk to me about because I just don't have time. Um, so yeah, it was, that was fun. That was a fun time. That's, that's incredible. I mean, you know, I could sit and listen to, Stories about uh, on I, I'm more interested in the behind the scenes stuff. You know, it's just fascinating to me. That's a whole alien world. And speaking of alien worlds, um, we are almost halfway through series ten of Doctor Who, and I think you know our last show that we did, our last episode, we had only seen the pilot. So there have been four new episodes that have come out. So I think now's an excellent time to kind of jump in and, and talk a little bit about episodes, well, one through five of the new series. And um, Jeremy, since you're our guest, I'd like to start off by asking you, what do you think of Capaldi's run uh, in general and um, series 10 so far? 
I, I love Capaldi's run. Um, I think it's really bold. I actually think the decision they made early in his run uh, was kind of genius um, and very risky because I think people have been used to a certain amount of a certain type of doctor with Matt and Matt Smith and David Tennant and Christopher Eccleston, and this was a different kind of approach. I really think that Stephen Moffat thought like I needed to do something very different, and what if I made instead of focusing on time travel and paradoxes and playing with with the idea of living in a malleable sense of time, which I think is what he had done uh, with Matt Smith's era. Um, he kind of said, well, let's take the doctor on a real journey, a journey to really find who he is and determine, you know, maybe this guy isn't a good person. Maybe he needs to dis rediscover that about himself. And so I think we had two seasons that were pretty challenging, um, that did kind of push whether or not you liked him and, and who he was a little bit. And now we're on the other side of that, and so the kind of joyous goofiness of Peter Capaldi this season and like the more kind of ease and comfort he has with himself has been earned, and so it, it feels really great. It doesn't feel like a, like a whimsical eccentricity. It feels like someone who's kind of joyously rediscovered who he is. And, and uh, so I've been loving that about, about this run. Uh, and I think it wouldn't work as well if we didn't have, you know, Series 8 and 9 being a bit more challenging. I don't know. What do you guys think? Did you guys like the first two seasons of Capaldi? I liked it while I was watching it. Um, I find series eight a little rough to go back and watch because I, I, Doctor Who is comfort viewing for me, and there's mm -hmm. some there's some just general unpleasantness with most of most of his episodes. Like if I'm going to go back, I'm going to go back and watch Jamie Matheson stuff. Um, right, you know, like those. It, I don't want to say it feels like classic Doctor Who to me, or feels like the kind of Doctor Who I like, because I feel like that's a cheat. I agree with you entirely. I just found the the process to be a little unpleasant. Um, but I like that there's an arc. It feels sort of like what they wanted to originally do with Colin Baker and mm -hmm. didn't get a chance to do, and it sort of feels like vindication that that sort of thing could work. So, you know, instead of getting one season of a very unpleasant doctor uh, and then the weirdness that was Baker's final season, uh, we actually get a a character arc, which I think is, is excellent. Uh, well, 8 and 9, I mean, I loved, I still loved it, uh, mostly for Capaldi's um, acting, really. But I thought it was eight and nine were like really dark, and and I'm pretty good with dark things. But I I just I think they went a little too far, maybe. And uh, it seems like ten, it's it's a lot lighter. It is like a reboot. He's much more recognizable as the Doctor to me this year, right? Than he has been the last couple of years. That's just. But of the five, um, I I've liked them all this year. There's not been one bad one this year so far. I would say of all the five, I think Oxygen is probably my favorite so far. Huh. Along along with the pilot. I, I just thought it was really intense, like the entire time. Especially uh the couple of scenes where uh, uh where Bill's suit that one scene where Bill's suit was about to go and he was like, This is gonna be really rough. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie to you, this is gonna be really bad. But just hang on, you're not gonna die. And she's like, What? What? You didn't even tell me a joke. Come back. That was really intense and um i've just loved it so far this year well that's that's great i mean i yeah i totally have 
It's interesting. I thought like, um, you know, there, Bill has been such an incredible addition. I mean, she's such a, their, their connection has been so interesting. And, um, you know, I really love the idea of, of taking this person who he really just looks at and says like, okay, I can make your, like you have, you've demonstrated this weird kind of off kilter curiosity like the scene in the pilot where she talks about how he got the TARDIS inside and she's trying to figure out like how'd you get it in like how did that happen I mean like it's always nice to see it's you know I mean I'm a big classic Who fan and sometimes it was like anybody who wandered anybody who was like 18 to 25 who wandered across his path at the right moment he would just take them in the TARDIS and they weren't always great at showing you know they're just different way of doing television but they didn't always show you know, okay, this is why he thinks this person's a good companion. And I love that, you know, they aren't trying to make Bill like this mystery or a puzzle box or exceptional or, you know, unique or she's just really interesting and she sees things in an interesting way that is still believably realistic. You know, you can totally buy Bill as a person. And um, I love that they that's how they construct, you know, the kind of backbone of the series. He gets revitalized and says, all right, we're going to go on adventures now and we're going to have fun because you, you have, you've shown me that there's a way to look at things, or at least you seem like you look at things the same way I do. And I think that has really made the series really just a, like a breath of fresh air. So I think she's a great addition. And part of the reason why it feels so joyous again is, is her kind of spark and their spark together. So I've been liking that. 100% agreement. Yeah, I think, um, I love, I mean, I don't think there's anything, anything negative I have to say about Doctor Who, it's never going to be about Capaldi, right? It's like, like, he's, he's genius. It's so nice to see uh, an amazing actor in the role. And I don't think they've ever cast a bad actor in the role of the Doctor, but Capaldi, boy, it is, it is impressive. Um, And I think this series is going along smashingly. I love it. I'm really enjoying it. I've, I've, you know, five episodes in, I don't think there's a clunker in the bunch. And, uh, I, I think the, the, if they can continue this way, this is going to be looked upon as a really memorable series. And yeah. I think, I think so too. And I think, you know, I don't, I honestly, I don't care what's in the vault. I, I really don't like it's, it's fun to speculate wildly about it, but <laughs> my own, like my fingers crossed is that whatever it is, doesn't have anything to do with Bill. I'm right yeah, yeah. I'm right there with let's just let Bill be a companion. I want to know her journey. I want to see her reaction and relationship with the doctor flourish and change, but I don't want it to be some universe-shaking secret. I it would just be nice to see it this be, you know, Bill. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and the other thing too that I was uh, you know, I was thinking about is that it's almost as if Stephen Moffat, you know, when he got his list of writers together and he brought them all into a room, Sarah Dollard and Jamie Matheson and and all of them, and just said, "Hey, guys, write me the most Doctor Who-y Doctor Who that you can write. Whatever that means to you, I want it to feel the most like, you know, Tom Baker and Liz Sladen or." you know, Pat Troughton and Fraser Hines or whatever your ideal vision of it is, just write that. And I want it to feel like, don't worry about making it different or bold or new. Make it feel like 
this is the classic, you know, Doctor Who adventure. And every episode has really felt like they wanted to tell, you know, this is this is my version of it. And, you know, I think it's great. I think, there, you know, when you knock, knock, I mean, that was, uh, I thought, just such a, a brilliant, actually gothic piece of writing. It wasn't a pastiche or a homage. It was actually gothic. There was actual tragedy and... and and beauty and and you know real feeling to it but it still feels like ghost light or you know feels like pyramids of mars or feels like you know any of those classic sort of gothic doctor who episodes in the same way that oxygen feels a lot like ark in space or um the impossible planet and the satan pit you know it, it just feels like every episode this year hasn't tried to break the mold but it's tried to be you know, super Doctor Who, Doctor Who at, at its most Doctor Whoist, and I think that's that's why it, I think it feels so, you know, alive right now, and why it hasn't. None of them have been weak because of that. It's I, I can just to add to that. It's almost like rather than writing a new Who episode, they're writing a classic episode in the vein of new Who. Yeah, you know, like they're kind of like just polish off your classic, and 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 I don't say this in any negative way. I mean, you know. There's a lot of Doctor Who fans, you know, who are classic fans who crave that part of their youth, that nostalgia, you know, whatever it was when they were watching it when they were 10 to 15, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and I've heard a lot of fans who I've heard grumble a lot about Doctor Who in the last couple of years kind of prick up their ears and go, you know what? I'm kind of – I'm getting into the hang of this. I'm enjoying sure. it. I yeah. was uh, at a convention with Jamie Matheson – a week or so ago, and it was really nice. You know, like I've I've had this chance over the last four years to meet a lot of Doctor Who actors, but I really am always fascinated by meeting writers and listening to their process and just to hear what he originally had in the script and what it became. And, and he would talk about his meetings with uh, Moffat and how Moffat would, like, pare down ideas and change little things. And, you know, they could have one conversation and... Uh, yeah, just just to have this last episode where the doctor is, the stakes were there. I mean, you know, there was there was no moment of relaxation. It was, uh, you know, got the TARDIS. We'll get rid of the TARDIS. We'll get rid of the sonic screwdriver. Uh, you know what? He's been using his eyes an awful lot. Let's get rid of those two. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and at the same time, that's a it feels like a fairly dire episode. There was a lot of horrible stuff happening, but there's also so much good humor in that episode and the balance of that kind of horrific sci-fi aspect with the humor that went along with it was really masterfully accomplished. And, and I, I agree with, with Brent. I think oxygen in the pilot might be my two favorites so far. Oh man. See, I thought oxygen is probably my least favorite so far. Uh, why is that? Uh, I thought it was too dense. I thought that mm. um, there's just too much stuff it was trying to do too much going on. Um, like, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it had a lot that it wanted to do. It had a gigantic anti-capitalist, anti-corporate message in there, which I think it did really well. Um, and then it had, I thought that um, it had the scares that you wanted to have. Um, I thought that it had sort of, the, in the first half, it had the best attributes of this season, which has been the pace has slowed down. Uh, Thin Ice, Knock Knock, uh, The Pilot, they've all had a slower pace that mm. I've appreciated. Yes. Um, you know, they've taken their time a bit more. There are times in New Who where, 
I mean, and particularly during the tenant years, there were times when things just shot by so fast that that things didn't land the way they should, uh, and it was like, okay, oh, whoa, all right, um, and you know, I just thought that um, you know the 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 when the the minute they met the survivors, I thought that's when the pace started to get a little bit out of hand in terms of the writing. For instance, I liked the survivors, but uh, they were pretty thumbnaily. They were pretty, mm. you know, they didn't really resonate, but you could tell that they wanted them to. Like, he didn't write them as cannon fodder that you didn't care about. He gave them little elements of personality, and but then nothing really happened with that. And it's because he just didn't have the, the page space. He didn't have the time. And then I thought the resolution of some of the issues, um, like, for instance, um, you mentioned the, the situation with Bill. I thought that was great where her spacesuit, you know, had the, the issue and he said this is going to be bad and everything. But then the resolution of that felt very, very, very tossed off, right? I mean, it was a big thing. Bill looked like she was dead. And, you know, the solution to that came about awfully quickly and casually. And then I also felt that... Um, that you know there were elements where you know the action sort of disappeared for a while and i i, I just felt like the pace it, it just got too overstuffed and it probably could have used another pass just to say okay we're gonna cut out you know the opening bit with uh you know we're gonna pare that down the slower pace at the beginning so you have more time at the end to make all of this all of these ideas land a little better now having said that when i say I like it the least i mean it's my least favorite out of you know, four or five really great episodes. So it's a lot like looking at, you know, Tom Baker's run with Liz Sladen and go, I don't really like the Android invasion that much, you know, but, but still loving the Android invasion and putting it on like 15 times a year, you know, I mean, it's, that's sort of what it's like. So sure. I, I don't, I don't say it just mean that it's a, a bad episode by any means. There's so much great stuff in there and there's a, and you know, saying something has got too much stuff packed in it. I mean, that's a, you know, that's not a, a exactly a damning flaw. It just means that I wish that they cleaned it up a little bit so that some of the stuff landed a bit better, some of the characters resonated a bit more. You know, and I'm not loving the blind thing because I think that that's going to go away pretty darn quickly, and so I'm not really sure why uh, they need to cliffhanger me on that because I'm like, yeah, he's going to see again. We're not going to have blind Peter Capaldi for the rest of this season. I don't think that's what's going to happen. So it may mean something, like it may turn into something else, but... You know, it, it felt a bit gimmicky to me, and I'm just waiting to see what they do with it next week to kind of make me think that that's not a gimmick, but rather an actual development. But that's it. Other than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that it can be said about this series is that the endings of each episode have wrapped up fairly neatly and sometimes maybe a little too quickly. I think um, a number of people said that. And uh, speaking of things that have interesting ways of wrapping up, I think we should probably move on to uh, your selection uh, for the television program. Of course, one of the things we do on Who and Company is we bring in Doctor Who fans because they're our people, they're our tribe, but we also know that there are other things that they love, and so we invite each guest to bring bring a, a television show to our attention that they want to talk about, uh, particularly something that's British, and you chose The Prisoner. Jeremy, can you tell us why you chose the prisoner to talk about uh i love the prisoner uh i it was a hallmark of pbs pledge drives uh when i was a kid and uh loved it fascinated by it uh didn't understand it 
for a long time, for many, you know, but just always knew that it was just outside my reach. And, uh, and I, if I just watched it maybe that seventh or eighth time, then I'd finally get to understand all the nuances. <laughs> um, and I loved, I just, I just thought it was, it, it, it was probably, you know, there's a thing, you know, you watch when you're kids, you watch movies and you watch TV shows and sooner or later you watch that show. It's a show that is too old for you or too innovative or too complex or nuanced and it kind of kicks you open into another way of watching things or reading things. You know, some people it's a book and some people it's music and some people, you know, it's, you know, they come across a Velvet Underground song or whatever it is, but it happens to everybody. And The Prisoner is kind of that thing that made me go, whoa, I mean, TV isn't just Doctor Who and the Six Million Dollar Man. It's it's also this. And I don't know what this is, um, but there's clearly something more going on here than what the plot kind of tells. And so that's that's why I love that show. And, and it's a show that I return to, you know, over and over again and almost every time go, okay, yeah, there's a new thing. Here's a new little bit that I can see uh, and, you know, draw from. And so I, I love that about it. So you watched it when you were fairly young. Yeah, I mean, I was probably before I was 12, I would say. So I'm going to say like 10 or 11 I watched it probably. Uh, and yeah, I mean, just blew my mind. I'd never seen, uh, I mean... Okay, so should I should I should we talk about the premise of the show? Should Let's talk about the premise. Absolutely. For, for, okay, for listeners who have not are not familiar with the prisoner, we're probably in order to even talk about it, we're going to have to be fairly spoilery. Uh, but you know, I I think that's going to be okay. I think I think when you talk about a fifty year old show, I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think I think we can cover this without without offending too many people. So please yeah, explain, so. explain, <laughs> give me the elevator pitch <laughs> to the prisoner. Cause the elevator, here's the thing. The elevator pitch of the prisoner is a no brainer and they would make it today. So yeah, basically absolutely. the, the elevator pitch, pitch of the prisoner is this. There's a British secret agent. Okay. A, a, a spy. And he goes into his, his secret organization and he resigns. And we don't know why he resigns. He goes back to his house. He starts packing up. He's going to go to Tahiti. You know this because he quite boldly puts a picture of Tahiti on his suitcase. I don't know why you take a picture of the place you're going to on the place you're going to, but there you go. And at that point, mysterious uh, men inject gas into his room. He falls asleep. He wakes up, and he's in this bizarre, vaguely foreign place called The Village, uh, peopled with all these strange people in sort of 1960s mod, you know, clothing. There's lava lamps everywhere. And he doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know what side they're on. But he does know that they want to know why he resigned. And the whole thrust of the series is him refusing to conform to their society and trying to hold on to this secret of why he resigned. Uh, and that's that's the series. Um and it's it's brilliant. Patrick McGowan at that point is the star, and he was most famous. He was very famous. He was the highest paid television actor in Britain, and he had been appearing on a show called Danger Man, which was also called Secret Agent Man in the U.S. And as a spy named John Drake, and and many people surmise that this is sort of a a, a de facto sequel to Danger Man. And so the idea is that this this kind of James Bond esque spy is put in this place to try and figure out 
why he left and, you know, try and make him conform to this strange, strange society. And uh, the series is, is bizarre and it's surreal and it's ambiguous and it's very allegorical. The whole thing is basically just a big allegory about individualism versus collectivism. And, uh, and it's brilliant. It's just, it's, it's a brilliant show. I mean, it's a, it's a bit, that was a bit long for an elevator pitch, but I, yeah. I certainly would have stayed in the elevator to listen to you to pitch it. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a long elevator ride, but yeah. Yeah. The elevator pitch is a spy quits and he gets imprisoned and they want to find out why. That's, that's the <laughs> elevator pitch. Yeah. This, this show was first introduced to me in 2003 when I picked up uh, the Marvel comic, The Runaways. And I'd heard of it before, but I'd never watched it. And in The Runaways, there's this whole page given to talking about how bizarre the show is and how they didn't think something like that could have made been made so long ago. And I'm like, all right, I got a DVD player. I can, I can pick up the series. I'll watch. Whoa. This is to television what Vertigo Comics uh, is to comics. Uh it is it is very much something and it is it is exactly what you you said at some point in time you're going to hit that thing that bends your mind and and challenges you and in the same way that anything that Grant Morrison wrote when I was a teenager uh this is that for television and it's ti- yeah, absolutely. it's it's timeless mhm yeah cuz i think that that you know i think that struggle of of you know, how much is the individual responsible to the collective? How much does the collective impose its will on the individual? I mean, that can be taken a bunch of different ways. And I think part of the genius of the show, the thing that always, as I get older, that I recognize more and more, is that, like, they do a really bold way of looking at individuality. Because typically, if you want to do a story about the individual and the power of the individual, then usually what you do is the state's repressing him and the individual has this viewpoint, like he wants to express something. But this was the first show I ever watched where there's a secret at the center of the show that the viewer doesn't ever want to see solved. Mm-hmm. You don't want to know. You don't want to know why he resigned because if you find out why he resigned, that means he loses. And that's a really. I mean, all the other shows, like even Twin Peaks, you want to find out who killed Laura Palmer and Lost. You, what is the island? You're gonna. You want to find that out. This is why did he resign? I don't want to know. I want him to beat them. I want him to win. And so individuality is expressed by having a secret, by being closed off, by being, by standing apart. And I think that's a, that's an interesting way of doing it. And that's what kind of mystifies me every time I look at it. Yeah, what's interesting about the show is uh, essentially every episode it's the bad guys tr- go on their mission to break number 6 and he d- he's never he can't the show ends if he gets off the island. So he's essentially every episode failing to get off the island and they're failing to get him to do anything. It's it's a stalemate at almost yeah. every single episode and that's fascinating. You you probably couldn't get away with that. No, I you know when I was watching that I was thinking um that kind of scenario that you're just talking about was uh I know this was the 60s but in the 70s it was it was a lot like the incredible hulk. Mm. Every week he's looking for a cure and you'd always have that episode where he has it and then all of a sudden somebody fights him and he breaks it and he doesn't have it. 
or uh, like the fugitive right back in the 60s yeah you're actually almost in many ways rooting him for him to fail <laughs> yeah because you know he's never gonna leave until this show is over so <laughs> uh, but somehow somehow they write it to where you know it's it's still intense especially uh, one of the ones we're going to talk about in a minute, Chimes of Big Ben. Mm-hmm. Big, elaborate escape tip at the, at the end, and you think, well, he knows about these balloons, but you know, then he's got the sniper set up to, to... He's got everything planned out, and he still fails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of why I chose the two episodes. I mean, you, you when you guys asked me to be on the show, you're like, we usually pick one or two, and I chose the two I did, and I don't think they're the weirdest or the most innovative or the boldest, but they kind of distill the show. One of them, Chimes of Big Ben, is about, you know, him trying to escape and how that how he gets thwarted in that. Because it's episode two, so just to let you guys know, he does not make it out of the prison in episode two. That would be pretty boring. Um, but, like, it's about how that how the village wins in that particular instance. And then the other one I chose, Hammer into Anvil, is much more about, like, how he turns, how he finds ways to win without leaving. And how he turns the village against itself. So they were really clever in being able, like, making it a battle of wills between them. Because while they could keep him there and keep him imprisoned and and he would lose in that sense, he would always win. Because the one piece of information they would want, he wouldn't give them. So you would you would never get depressed, you know. Like even the Incredible Hulk, you sometimes he's walking down the highway and that piano music's playing. And you're like, God damn it, that's sad. You know, jeez, he's gonna be Lou Ferrigno for 45 minutes next week, and that's a tough one, you know. But this is like, you know, he had a Patrick McGowan had this wonderful way in the village. They say, "Be seeing you" as their sort of greeting. He's got this great way of like saying that in a way that sounds a lot like screw you yeah and you know he you know it's just uh the defiance of him is is it means that he never quite loses i mean chimes of big ben he loses pretty hard but uh he never quite is defeated which uh which is keeps it from being depressing yeah those are both fabulous episodes um having not it's been, been essentially been 13 14 years since i've watched the series in its entirety um, I was like, all right, yeah, I want to watch these two episodes, but I, I want to, I want to get the taste. So, you know, I watched the first six episodes and then I watched, um, basically, I think I skipped like four or five and then watched the the remaining of them. And it's just, it's fabulous. When you picked two really amazing episodes and if someone said, I'd like to watch The Prisoner, what should I watch? I'm like, well, you got to watch episode one just so you can yeah. get an understanding. There's a lot of exposition in that one. And Really, all the information you, you, what little information you're going to get, all of it you're going to get in there. Chimes of Big Ben, fantastic. Hammer and Anvil, fantastic. I love 48 minutes of him gaslighting another human being. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, you know, and they could have done that episode in 25 minutes. I was watching it, going, "All right, I know how this is going to end." You're like from right. five, ten minutes into it, you know how it's going to end. But it's so creative. It's so amazing, yeah. and it's like this guy. This guy must have been one hell of a spy to be able to pull this stuff off. And there's another one called A, B, and C, which mm. is uh, an ins- felt very much like an inception um, that really plays up the the kind of abstract surrealistic technology that they have to play with and how they can play with that sort of genre. Just yeah, I mean, it's it's so good. It's so, <laughs> it's good. so good. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and 
this is a show that was designed to have, I think, two seasons of 13 episodes originally. There's discussion about that. Yeah, I think there's a discussion about that. I, Patrick McGowan has always kind of said that he thought that there were... He, you, out of the season of the episodes that exist, the 17 of them, you only need to watch seven. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's ever said which seven those are. Um, but he, he kind of intimated that he always saw it as a very limited storytelling. Yes. And then the people making it wanted to do more than one. But then I think it was so weird and so expensive to make. And McGowan was so, I don't want to say difficult, but exacting. Because um, he was the main, as the actor, he plays number six. And he's also the driving creative force behind the show. He wrote under pseudonyms many of the episodes. He directed many of them under pseudonyms. And then he wrote and directed the last two episodes himself under his own name. So it's his show. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the eventually ITV, who produced it, just said, you know what, no, we're going to do 17, and that's going to be it. And uh, it was extremely, it, it, I mean, it is you know, a television show that feels like a complete, you know, vision, an uncompromised vision and a work of art. And, you know, it, it couldn't be, I can't imagine it doing season two. Like what would season two even be? Like, I can't imagine 30 episodes of the prisoner. It just needs to be a shorter thing. It just couldn't sustain itself. What do you, what do you guys think? Do you think it could? That's what I was saying earlier. Like it's just the same thing over and over. If, if you have, Number two, trying to break him, and then he tries to escape, and he can't escape. Um, there's only so much of that you can do, I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as much as I love it, I think it is probably three or four episodes too long. And probably if it had been 13 only, it would be 13 kind of perfect episodes. And you would just see it as a, a, a just, you know, this little jewel or this little gem as it is it's still amazing none of them are boring but they're all you know some of them are really weird um but, some of them uh, are not episodes you would put on for casual viewing i think i think no. there's there's one or two of them in there that's kind of like you know what maybe maybe you don't need to to just watch that you could skip over this one uh, and, and i just want to go back to something brent said because i if you if it's just number two trying to defeat him and failing that there's that's going to get repetitive and they do something that is so ingenious and that is to replace number two in every episode, sometimes multiple times in a single episode. And that keeps, because number two, sort of like the doctor, the role is the same, but each guest actor brings something new to the role. That keeps it very fresh and very entertaining. I, I find that to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and we should probably say too that... Um... The reason why we're saying number six and number two for anybody who hasn't watched it is that no one has any names in the village. They're all given numbers and they all have little buttons that have their numbers on it. And number two is sort of seen as the the manager of the village, the person in charge on an odd day to day basis. So there's two, you know, the other big question of the series is if there's a number two and McGowan's character is number six, then who's number one? Who's the ultimate person in charge of this whole enterprise uh and that's a, a central mystery too that gets resolved very weirdly um <laughs> yes but yeah he yeah that it, that does inject a lot of life it, and i think also they use the opportunity to, to say you know in a how does a society control people and 
I think these two number twos in the episodes we looked at, like Leo McKern plays number two in The Chimes of Big Ben, and he's this sort of great Falstaff kind of true believer. Like, he fervently believes in what the village represents, and he wants it to be everywhere, and he's so devoted to it. And, you know, the number two in Hammer into Anvil, which is the other episode we watch, is this just secret police paranoid sadist yeah and they're two you know you couldn't they're probably the two most opposite ends of the spectrum but uh yeah it, it, the cat and mouse quality of how he's going to match wits with whatever number twos this number two specific approaches that is a lot of the fun of the show you know and uh that's why it's great that they replace them almost every time because it's you know they just bring something new every time yeah that's uh that's just fascinating to me you know it to it's sort of like uh rather than asking who's your favorite doctor uh, so who's your favorite number two kind of a thing uh, <laughs> are you asking me uh, yeah who's your favorite number two <laughs> uh, i love i love leo mckern i think leo mckern is great i think there's a reason why he came back for the finale uh mm-hmm. he's one of the few i think there's only uh, one other guy who comes back for two, the guy number two in A, B, and C. I think he comes back for the general. I want to say, which is the one about the computer brain, right? right, um, right. And I like I like him as well. Uh, I think his name's Colin Douglas. Um, but my favorites are, are, you know, Leo McCurran is great because he he just feels like a person. Some of them t- sometimes feel like a device, right? Right. Uh, and he feels like a guy that's actually come in and, and does this job. And he's so good in in Chimes of Big Ben. He's such a, just this, you know, he, he you can tell he kind of likes uh, number six, even as he hates him. Right. Uh, you know, like there's things about him that he admires. and But there's that great exchange where, he reveals something about himself or number, he says something, I think it's something like number six says like the village is the whole world. And Leo McKern says, that's my dream. He says that like very fervently, you know, like the, if the village was the whole world, he would be a happy man. And that's a, a horrifying thought, but a very, <laughs> very real thought, you know, what well, like gives you an understanding me. of why, why so many people would exist in a world like this, you know, like you, you, mm-hmm. you always wonder in these spy movies, how does Cobra Commander convince all these people <laughs> to, to join a terrorist organization? You know, how, how do you get people interested in, in this? And, you know, the idea that brainwashing and mental manipulation, uh, breaking people under pressure, such a big part of the village's modus operandi mm-hmm. that, you know, how many of these people are like number two and be true believers or how many of them are like the hammer and anvil number two, which is a, a way to inflict their, they feel powerless in the face of superiority. How can they feel superior to people weaker than them? Sort mm-hmm. of a, sort of an understanding. And there's that mentality and that shift is quite impressive to see. Did you watch the 2009 remake of the prisoner? Uh, I watched um, about 45 minutes of it. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty terrible... I mean, like, it's it's not... Yeah, it's pretty terrible. It's pretty terrible. I don't know... I mean, I think if you wanted to make a modern version of The Prisoner, you would have to be so... You know, it's just a bad idea. It's a bad idea. You know, there's nothing about it like... Part of what The Prisoner is about, I think, anyways, is... 
there's a real contempt for modern life in the prisoner um and you know like the design of it the show like everybody's wearing primary colors and capes there's lava lamps rover which is this security feature is a giant weather balloon that floats around i mean it's insane but also scary i mean it's ridiculous it you kind of the first time you see it mixing for rover is amazing I mean, that's the thing. It has this roar that it does. And I don't know how it works. I don't know how it knocks people out. It doesn't make any sense to me. But it's still scary and silly. Much like the Daleks, right? It's both scary and silly. And there's a weird character to it. Um, But all of it's very mod. Like 1960s mod. And there's so much in the show that is about sort of how empty buying things is. How empty noise is music's a big thing like you know i i don't know if it's in the first episode or in chimes of big ben but there's like that little box on his in his apartment it's like a speaker that's not connected to anything but it plays music incessantly like the show has a contempt for for all of modern life and you know when they talk about the village they talk about how democratic it is and how they have all the modern conveniences and they have all you know it's there's a there's a real contempt for everything about it. So it's not just I don't think it's just that the the village is supposed to be a totalitarian regime. It's also just supposed to be like modern life and no introspection and all this sort of just being affable and going along. All of that is bad. You know, if you don't examine yourself and you don't have you know a, a, a protection of your own identity and you just give yourself over to whether it's communism or capitalism either way it's bad and i think that's what makes it so timeless because no matter what society you're in there's things about it as a collective idea that aren't good and you know you got to go back to the importance of being your own person and um, that's what i think makes it kind of evergreen so remaking it is silly (laughs) because it already said everything it's going to say. You know, there's nothing you can add to it. What, CG? You're going to add CG and Ian McKellen and that'll make it all better? I don't, I, I just, you know, as good as Ian McKellen is, I don't think that that, that was enough, you know? Yeah. I think the only place for it is, uh, just happened to be this morning, I was trying to catch up on all the uh, Big Finish podcasts. Yeah. And uh, and the one I come across this morning was uh, Nick Briggs had taken his family to Port Marion maybe a month or two ago when they had a... Um, prisoner they have like a prisoner convention there every year right and so there's audio of him going there and walking around and they reenact um the episode um the one about the election yeah free uh, free for all free for all yeah. yeah and of course uh they've also done a couple of box sets of uh of the prisoner i haven't heard them are they i wonder if they're good i mean they don't do anything bad so i you know nothing i've ever heard by them has been bad so i'd be interested to hear it if you go there to their website, uh, the very first episode is for free, so you can download. It's like an hour, um, maybe an hour and twenty minutes long. Oh, well, that's what I'm doing after this, then. Yeah, <laughs> same here. Yeah, the first one is free. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it's it, it's it's. I'm glad that you mentioned this because I, you were saying you couldn't imagine a second season. I'm really kind of curious to what how they're going to prolong this. Yeah, it's tough. You know, I mean, I think like uh, you know. If, it ends as a, mo- a kind of a Mobius strip, right? So, I mean, the final shot, I mean, not to spoil anything for anybody too much, but the final shot of the Prisoner television series is identical to the first shot of every episode of The Prisoner. So, um, I don't know that it, 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 in, that, in that way, it's sort of, I guess, supposed to always go on. 
Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I would love to hear the big finish style. I'm surprised. I mean, I've just been wary of ever dipping my toe into another prisoner thing. DC Comics did a sequel in the 80s, which was actually authorized by Patrick McGoohan. So if you can come across that, it's in a trade. It's very weird, and it's not altogether great, but, um, but it, you know, it works fairly okay. But it still doesn't feel like it, it's necessary. I still think those 17 episodes are just a perfect little you know, perfect little package, and, you know, and, and uh, I, I don't know what else they add to it, but, it, yeah. I wanted to uh, say a couple of things before we go. Um, when I first found this show, it was in the 90s. It was back when um, Sci-Fi Channel first started, and they were showing all these really cool sci-fi shows. Um, that's where I got into Dark Shadows, um, mm. Kolchak, the Night Stalker, uh, Night Gallery, all these shows. And they showed The Prisoner. And I'd heard about it, but I'd never seen it. So I watched all 17 episodes, and I really got into it because I loved uh, the vibrant colors, the striking visuals, the symbolism, and all this fast dialogue, and the acting was great. And weird stuff like in the first episode where the guy's singing opera in front of a floating head. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Weird stuff like that. But there's there were two things that, that struck me. Uh, first, the first one you were, you said earlier about they're all numbers and and you know he's number six and who's number one. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if there is an answer to that, but I've always thought that at the beginning where he says who are you and he said I'm number two and he's like well who is number one and he says you are number six mm-hmm. and I thought you know if you put a comma in there <laughs> you are number six mm-hmm. you are number one and and I've always thought that when I was watching it and. And I always wanted to know the answer to that. I was waiting for that last episode. And the other thing was, why did he resign? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was thinking about this today. There's uh, Stephen and, and Erica from Lazy Doctor Who. They they did an episode a few months ago and where Erica explained something called Doylist mm-hmm. view and Watsonian view. Yeah. I was thinking about why he resigned. And from the Watsonian point of view, which... For anybody that doesn't know, it's like the, the reason for something that happens inside the story. Like if you were a character in the story, like maybe he was tired of being just another agent or just another number, and that's why he quit. But from the Doyless view, like an outsider, like behind the scenes view, I looked at it as he had just come off Secret Agent Man or Danger Man, and maybe that was his way of showing that he didn't want to be typecast. He's like, I'm, I'm done with being a secret agent. And that's the whole reason for the character resigning at the beginning. And he wa- because he wanted to do something totally new and totally different. Yeah, I think you're, I don't think you're wrong. Um, you know, there's a fascinating thing about Patrick McGowan, which is um, he was offered James Bond and also offered the role of the saint on television. And he turned them both down because he's, uh, he was a, a, quite a devout Roman Catholic and he just despised the misogyny of and the you know sort of casual violence of those characters and um, if you look in the in the prisoner for instance he never has a love interest he has lots of women that he interacts with and that he tries to help but they're never love interests because he didn't believe that you know you should be so casual about that and um I think, you know, he was offered a ton of money to do more Secret Agent Man or Danger Man, and he turned it all down to do this. And I, I think you're right. I think from a Doyle's point of view, this was his way of saying, 
uh, I don't want to do that anymore and I'm capable of more and I, I don't really know what those those types of roles have to say about anything and I want to make something that has something to say about the world in which we live and what was funny about it is when he did the finale of this series uh, it was so hated <laughs> because I think people wanted number one to be revealed to be like Blofeld to be like Dr. Evil <laughs> they wanted it to be some bad guy the and butler. instead what he re- yeah the butler the butler did it. Instead, what he wanted, instead what he revealed was something way more complicated and, and ambiguous and allegorical. And people hated it. And he actually left England at that point with his family because everyone hated him so much for having, you know, done this weird thing. But I think, like, making it that weird and, and having that, that point of view of, I don't want to just make a spy show. I want to make something that says something more. That's what's made it I mean, nobody, I mean, who watches Danger Man anymore? I mean, people might watch Danger Man as a fun, nostalgic thing because they watched it when they were kids. But I would, I would probably venture that more people have seen The Prisoner than have ever seen Danger Man under the age of 40. Uh, and I think there's a reason for that because it's got more to say. And we're so glad that you brought it to our attention that we could we could talk about it today. Hope I didn't blather on too much. No, no, but that's the thing is we we love to hear the enthusiasm that people have for for things you know Doctor Who and uh, you know non Doctor Who alike. Uh, oh yeah, Jeremy Raddick, it's hard to thank get me you to so sh- much. Shut up that. <laughs> thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me, you guys. It was a real pleasure, and uh, and I, I love the show so far. I've been listening to it, and I'm desperately trying to find the tripods after listening to Shapansky talk about it. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's been great. So thanks for having me. Absolutely, and, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom, stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com/pixelwho. Who and Company can now be found on iHeartRadio.com, or you can download the podcast directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. You can also contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. See you next month. Be seeing you.